You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word. Good morning and welcome to our online worship service. We're so glad that you could join us today as we continue in our teaching series through the Gospel of Mark called Jesus Says. We come today in a passage that's really a sort of a conclusion so far in this series. It's an important conclusion. It's not a final conclusion, but it's a conclusion for the ongoing confusion that the disciples have as to Jesus's identity. We've seen this uh, a lot through the last chapters, them ask this question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is this man who can calm the storm? Who is this man uh, who uh, settles the waves? Who is this man who walks on water, who heals the sick, who even rebukes demons and even raises the dead from the grave? But all that changes in this passage today where Jesus asks his disciples abruptly, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first to stand up and say, you're, you're the Christ. You're the one who we've been waiting for. He understands and he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, it's not his last name. It's a title. It's a role, a, a function of his identity. It means the Messiah, the anointed one to save God's people. It was the promised Old Testament uh, king who would come and and lead God's people into uh, eternal peace and love. He'd be the king of all kings, the one to end all kingdoms, the one who would, who would lead God's kingdom uh, forever. And they've really been slow to understanding this until this passage today. Now they grasp the fact that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. However, their understanding is short-lived as Jesus points this out in dramatic fashion. They're still confused in one critical area. They know who he is, but they don't know or they misunderstand why he has come. Peter is right about Jesus' identity, but he's very wrong about Jesus' mission. So wrong that Jesus would rebuke Peter to his face and even call him Satan. I think we can agree that's probably the worst rebuke that you could hear from Jesus. What could Peter have done so wrong? What could he have gotten so wrong to receive such a strong rebuke from Jesus? If anything, this is a bit of a warning for us. It can show us that it's very possible to know Jesus, to confess him as the Son of God, and yet miss out completely on the blessing of 
his kingdom and the benefits of his mission, which is to seek and to save the lost, to reconcile sinners back to God. And so it's possible to confess Christ and yet not really know the benefit of who he is. And that's what this passage really addresses for us today. We see in chapter 8 is really a halfway point in Mark's gospel. The first half of, of Mark's gospel deals with, with Jesus' identity, describing him as the, the miracle-working Son of God who has come into the world. And the second half is going to be seeing and showing how, he is, how his mission is to save sinners. And this is where the story pivots for us. If we desire to truly know Jesus, we need to grasp not only his identity as a miracle-working son of God, but also his mission to save us, to sacrifice us for us, to die on the cross as our substitute. We need to understand both. The rebuke is so strong for Peter because he, he doesn't understand Jesus fully. He gets Jesus wrong. He gets his identity right, but his mission wrong, and so he misses it all. And so when it comes to Jesus' mission, we want to see three things in this passage. We want to see an important word that changes everything. I'll tell you what that word is in a moment. We will see the suffering servant, and then lastly, the gracious rebuke. Let's look at the word that changes everything. What is the word in this passage that changes the meaning of everything? Well, it's that small word, That is must, M-U-S-T. And when Jesus says it in verse 31, we'll remind you about that. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Do you see, Jesus didn't say that he would suffer and die, that he would try to suffer and die, but that he must suffer and die. And the word is so crucial that it becomes the controlling and dynamic word in this whole passage. It means that everything in this passage that is explained for us was something that was absolutely necessary for Jesus to do. It's such a significant word, and it's a scary word if we actually see what it means. You see, the cross of Jesus wasn't just a good act of God. It wasn't a a loving gesture or a a show of God's favor to us merely. It It was the execution of love. It was the carrying out of love. It was the the love of God that could not be expressed to us but for the cross. He had to suffer. He had to die if we were to know and to receive the love of God. I'll explain this with a common scenario that happens in our home all the time, maybe in yours as well. Our our children often misunderstand the concept of the difference between needs and wants. Now, not just children, adults misunderstand that all the time, let's be honest. But I hear one of my kids from their bedroom kind of calling out into the house, saying, Dad, come quick, I, I need you. I need you to come here. I need some help. Now, this word need can mean a couple things in that context. It can mean, Daddy, I want you to come here because there's something that needs to happen, but I don't really feel like doing it myself, and so I want you to come in and maybe you could get it for me or do it for me. 
Another way of saying that or meaning this is, Daddy, I, I need you in here because there's something that needs to happen. And unless you come in and unless you do it or unless you fix it, it will not be done. It won't get done. We often view the suffering of sacrifice and giving of life of Christ really in the first way and not so much in the second which is an error to see it this way. We see that God gave His Son as a gesture to us, a sacrifice, as a kindness to show us that He loves us, that He show us that He cares for us. But we don't truly depend on it as if it, if it didn't happen, then we would be hopeless in this world and without any hope for knowing Him and having a relationship with Him. I wonder, consider this in yourself, to what degree is the cross of Christ, his suffering, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, a necessity for you? If it didn't happen, would your life look much different? If he didn't suffer, if he didn't die, if he didn't raise from the grave, I mean, how would your life look any different? Do you completely and wholly depend on Him dying for you. Are we aware of that amount of neediness that we have for Jesus? You see, the punishment for sin against an almighty God is death. And if Jesus were to save His people and to love His people, it would be necessary for Him to suffer and die in our place. There is no other way. That is what this word means, that he must lay his life down for us. He must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. He must do it. Why? Because without it, we would be completely without hope. It means that there's a, a certain kind of helplessness that you and I face every single day an inability to fix what is ultimately wrong in our hearts an inability to climb our way up to God's favor, up to, his, up to heaven and into His acceptance. An inability, no matter what length we go through in this life, to right the wrongs that we have committed, to clean our slate, or even to get it polished up to such a degree, a degree that God would be pleased with us. You know, you and I might fool ourselves at times, thinking that we can develop the skills necessary enough to live as God desires for us, or maybe we can just get really good at pointing the finger or at something or someone else that might be to blame for how things or why things are wrong in this world. But there's really no way of getting around the harsh reality of what the Bible points out. The central message of all of Scripture is that Jesus has, has to die. He had to die. He must die. And that means that you and I need rescue. We need it. Not a single one of us are exempt from this desperate need that we cannot give ourselves. And Jesus goes on to address this plainly after he expresses that this is what must happen. He explains this in four different ways. It comes through the work of his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. It comes through the work of the suffering Messiah. While the reality of our hopelessness apart from Christ is fresh on our mind, we 
go quickly to this hope-filled picture that Jesus gives to us. It's a picture that shows us that we have not been left on our own or to our own. We have a God who cares for us and who rolls up his sleeves and enters into our mess and cares for us deeply. God has controlled the events of history and his plan to rescue and to restore us. It's unstoppable and it's beautiful. And part of his reasoning of saying, this is what I must do, he is also saying that everything in all of history has been prepared for me to do these things. Let's take a closer look at these four things that Jesus must do. Suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to suffer in order to secure our hope and our future with him? I mean, couldn't Jesus have just died of of natural causes? I mean, couldn't he have fallen asleep and had some kind of cardiac episode and, and not woken up? I mean, would that be enough? I mean, does he just need to die for our sins? Why did he need to suffer on a cross? Couldn't he have been a popular guy who wasn't rejected, happy-go-lucky, instead of one who was described as being filled with sorrow and acquainted with grief, as the scriptures describe? What is there to gain from a suffering Messiah? We are told that Jesus gave himself to a lifetime of temptation and suffering the suffering that comes from temptation and yet never falling into sin in order to obtain for us the unmatched ability to show us sympathy in our time of need. No one has ever suffered more. No one has ever endured more abuse. No one has ever deserved it less. And no one has ever had a greater right to fight back than Jesus, and yet he endured a lifetime of grief and suffering so that as we go through times of suffering, he could be a God who sympathizes with us. He never resisted the suffering that came his way. He had a full storehouse of all of the resources of heaven and he could have stopped his suffering in a moment, but as an act of love for his father and submission to his will, he gave himself to a life of suffering. This is amazing. It's astounding, isn't it? That the risen Son of God in heaven at God's right hand, with all authority over all of heaven and earth, he feels what you feel when you feel it. He knows the ache in your heart. He knows the temptation that is strong to sin. He's full of sorrow. He was full of disappointment and grief. He was cornered at time by sinful temptations and he never gave in. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected so that his people would not feel unwelcome in his presence in the midst of their own struggles. Because don't we feel that way at times? When you're going through a really challenging time, you feel just like, uh, you feel like you're just not doing anything right. No one, nothing is going well for you. You wonder what God is doing in, in all of it. You feel burdened. You feel irritated. 
You know that you've been sinning. You know that you have been doing what God has called you not to do. And don't you feel just awkward coming into God's presence in that moment? Don't you feel like you really don't deserve it? Don't you feel like you need to be doing something different and get better and then feel more composed and ready to come into the presence of God and not be ashamed? Of course you do. That's what sin does. But because Jesus suffered from the moment he was born to the, to the moment he was laid in a tomb and abandoned, he suffered so that you and I through Christ and through, his, uh, through our debt paid on the cross, we would not be ashamed to come into his presence. The Bible says that we can have full confidence in Christ, through his righteousness, to come into his presence, even bearing our sin, taking our irritation, taking all of our burdens, our sorrows, and our grief. I am glad that Jesus was a suffering Messiah. He knows what we are going through. He sympathizes with us. He's also a Messiah who had to die and rise again. He had to do it. You've heard of the phrase, you, you break it, and you buy it, right? You break it, you buy it. What does that mean? Basically, it means, it means that if you commit a wrong, you, your, your debt has been established with this person that you've wronged. And the debt can be paid off in one of two ways. Either you can pay off the debt, the person who has committed the wrong, or the offended person can absorb that debt, and only then that debt can be wiped clean. See, Jesus had to die. Why? Because the punishment for sin is death. And that debt can only be paid off in one of two ways. The offending person, that's us, the sinner, can right our wrongs. And how do we do that? Well, we can't. We, well, we, we die. That's the only way to pay for sin. We die, but then we're separated from God. Or we just obey God's law perfectly, but we can't do that. And even the Bible says that we're actually born into this world guilty through the guilt of Adam who sinned in the garden. And so it's impossible. That's just another way of saying we can't pay that debt. The debt is too enormous. We cannot do it. The only other way to have our debt cleaned and paid for is for the offended person to pay it for us, to absorb that debt. Jesus had to die. Because the punishment for sin is death. If we are saved from the consequences of sin, it will not because you it'll not be because you and I have done something good. It will only be because our record of sin has been nailed to the cross with Christ. There is no hope in our good works, there is no hope in our ambition for God. There's no hope in our attempt to, to right our wrongs or start a new chapter in our life or improve our character or, or have a better attitude. Jesus endured our suffering. He endured our rejection. He endured our death, not as a victim of an angry mob, but as a willing substitute for us. One who willingly gave himself in our place, there is no other way for us to be forgiven than for Jesus to die in our place. And he had to rise again in order to secure our resurrection. 
I heard the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection told as a story in this way. It goes like this. Imagine the keys to the forgiveness of our sins and God's acceptance of us were hung on the inside of Christ's tomb. Outside the tomb, Christ could do nothing. He could do a lot of things outside of the tomb. He could make the blind see and make the crippled walk. He could make the deaf hear. He could even raise the dead person to life, but eventually everyone would die again that he rose from the grave. And the only way to defeat death, he could not defeat death outside of the grave. The only way to defeat death and to bring rescue to our souls was for Christ to die, to enter into the tomb, to take the keys and unlock the door from the inside. And you see, in this way, since Jesus suffered, was rejected, died and rose from the dead, death no longer becomes the worst thing that can happen to us. It actually becomes the best thing for us, for those who have come to Christ by faith, are raised with Christ in new life. And even though they die, they will live again. Don't you see what his death has done and his resurrection for us? He's unlocked the key to heaven and ascending into heaven and now seated at the right hand of God. He has made the way for us to enter into his presence forever. This isn't the end of the story, of of course. We see this rebuke from Jesus. I even call it a gracious rebuke. The gracious rebuke from Jesus, finally. What happens at the end of our passage? Well, Jesus lays out the mission clearly to his disciples, and Peter calls a private meeting with Jesus. So Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah that has come to lead God's people out of captivity and to be the king that ends all kings. But this is how I will do it. I will, be, I will, I will live a life of, of, of abandoned uh, rejection, I will suffer and be grieved all the days of my life. I will die, I will be buried, and I will rise again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside for a private meeting and rebukes him, telling Jesus it's ridiculous that Jesus would believe such a thing. I want that to sit in for a second. Peter is doing this to Christ. And Jesus calls Peter Satan. For doing this. Now, I think we can agree it's the worst thing that you could be called and never hopefully be called that from the mouth of Christ. These are the harshest words that Jesus has ever uttered uh, to to a well-meaning and devoted follower. But what's happening here? Does Satan, is Satan possessing Peter and taking over his mind, his body, and his soul? I think that's unlikely. What's more likely is that Peter has fallen not into demonic oppression, but demonic perspective on how a person can be rescued from the punishment of sin. It is the belief that our debt of sin can be forgiven without the need for God's self-giving, sacrificial death in our place. It is the very thing that Satan tricks us to believe, that our sin is a curse and it weighs heavy on our heart. But if we just simply change our life 
And if we get better, then we can be in a renewed sense and a new, renewed state of forgiveness with God. It is the very thing that Satan tempted Jesus with at the start of his ministry recorded in Matthew's gospel. Satan knew that Jesus had to suffer. Satan knew the story of God. He knew it well. He knew he had to be rejected. He knew he had to die. He knew that he would have to live a life of grief and sorrow. Do you think Jesus, for a moment, would be open to another way of, require, of, of securing our salvation than to go through that kind of life? Of course he would be open to that. He even says so on the night that he was betrayed and the night, that he, the night before his crucifixion, he pleads with his father and he says, if there is another way, then take this path from me. If I can secure your people in your love, if I can remove their sins and reconcile them to God without going through this, I'm all ears. That's what he says. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. And he cries out for this other opportunity, but Satan actually offers this to him at the very start. He offers him a way for, for him to be in glory without having to go through the pain of living a life of sorrow, suffering, rejection, and most importantly, the wrath of God being poured out on him. He says, I can help you with that. I can give you glory without the crown. I can give you glory without the crown of thorns, without the cross. And so Jesus heard Satan's voice in Peter's words. Jesus showed Peter that there are basically two ways of looking at things. God's way or man's way or man's, mankind's way. When we think of Jesus more as a, merely a, a godly way of living life than our substitute for sin in our place and, and, our, and a necessary uh, life and death for us, then we deny God's way. When we believe even for a second that our obedience earns anything from God that contributes to our salvation at all, we deny God's way. When we believe that God loves us based on our ability to do good for Him or to perform for Him rather than on Christ's perfect righteousness, then we deny God's way. And when we believe that we are accepted by God on anything other than Jesus' finished work on the cross for us. We deny God's way, and any of those teachings can be described as a demonic and satanic doctrine. Why do I call this a gracious rebuke? Well, it's a rebuke nonetheless, but it's gracious because Jesus is exposing the very thing that would keep Peter and his disciples from his love. And that is his kindness. That is his self-revelation. Revelation. It is Jesus coming to his disciples and saying, I need to show you where you're wrong about me. Because if you don't see what is true about me, you will never know me. You'll never know the blessing of forgiveness of sins. You will never be reconciled to God. You need to know who I am and why I have come. And you need to trust in it with all of your life. 
It is Jesus' grace to show us when and how we are living according to our own perspective that is sinful and flawed, our own agenda for how we believe that life should go rather than God's agenda. To think according to man's ways is to bring our plans to God, submitting our agenda and our ambitions and our expectations to Him and saying, I'm willing to suffer, but only this amount, and here is what I'm willing to give you for a life with you. And Jesus simply looks at us and says, no. No, that's not how it happens. He says, your plans are not my plans. Your ways are not my ways. Your priorities are not my priorities, but your, your plans must be my plans. My plans must be yours. My ways must be yours. My priorities, my opinions, they must be yours. See, we cannot come to Jesus negotiating with him how our life will go. We cannot come to him for a better life or a new personality. If we come to him bargaining with God, and negotiating with him for how we think our life should go, if we follow him, we are not coming to know Jesus or to worship him or to follow him. We're merely coming to use him. And he has no desire for that. But when we come to terms with our sin, our need for rescue every single day, and we see Jesus on the cross in our place as our only hope and substitute, only then can we know and truly say we know who He is. Only then when we say that His death on the cross for me is my only hope in life and my only hope for forgiveness of sins, only then can we say we know Him and we are following Him. And we are his disciple. For Jesus praised this very thing in John 17. He says, this is eternal life. This is what life is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, we cannot have eternal life and not know who he is. We cannot have eternal life and know his identity, but not know why he came. To He must die for us. The Bible knows no circumstance where there is a follower of Jesus Christ or a disciple of Jesus Christ who does not trust solely in Jesus' perfect righteousness for us. Do you know Jesus in this way? Not merely as one who helps us get through our struggles or helps us in our day or helps us fulfill our agenda for our life or gives us a better emotional disposition or a better personality. But do you know him as your savior? Do you know him as your perfect substitute? Do you know him as the, as, as the only perfect sacrifice for you so that your sin can be wiped clean and forgiven? Do you know him as the one who died for you? The one who suffered in order that you would never be alone in the midst of your suffering? It's the only way to truly know him. Anything else is a false god. It's the only way to follow him. Any way else is following something else and someone else that we have conjured up in our mind. 
But when we do follow this Jesus, when we do follow the Jesus who is the Son of God, the one we have waited for, the one who has created us and for whom we have been created, when we do follow him as the one who guides our conscience through the Holy Spirit, who leads us in truth, who shows us that the way to glory is not through a life of comfort, but one of picking up our cross and following him. When we do that, he gives us more than we could ever hope for. He gives us himself. And he says, nothing can take away my love for you.